All right, we're going to come back together. Hopefully you got something to eat and you can now find a place to sit. We are going to be starting a series in Romans on Easter. Now, within the Protestant and especially Reformed community, Romans is like, we go gaga over Romans. This is like the book that is known as a systematic theology and exposition of what the Christian faith is about and what justification by faith means. So I'm excited to start into this, into that book. We'll start, we'll start in Easter. We'll start with Romans 1. We'll go through the first eight chapters. Um, one of our elder candidates, John, will be preaching. We'll see if we'll get some more of the candidates up here. And so you can get excited for that. Um, as we, and you can start thinking about questions you have about this, about the book of Romans. We'll be examining it um, from both an individual like faith perspective, but also a corporate perspective, which I think is what it was designed to be written for. And so speaking about corporate, about what it means to be a local body, today was supposed to be membership Sunday. I know a lot of our life group leaders were pushing um, for people to become members, um, but I'm going to wait another month. We'll do that in the first week of May um, to give a little more time for membership interviews. And I want to, it also gives me an opportunity to talk a little bit more about formal membership here at Quicksilver because I don't actually teach on it that much. And so membership at Quicksilver is a way of formally opting into a group. And you might argue rightly that when you become a part of most groups, it's implicit. There's no like initiation ritual that happens in a group. You become part of it gradually. For instance, if you're, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about being born Chinese. There's no like certificate or initiation to, into being Chinese, right? That's just part of ethnic identity is something you just, are, you, you, you come into, you're born into. And yet there are certain commitments like marriage, for instance, or joining a company um, or becoming an Eagle Scout or adopting a child or giving birth to a child that have formality because of their significance. And so in Wesley Hill's book called Spiritual Friendship, he proposes the idea of adding formality to friendship. And what that got me thinking about is, I think they do this in Westerns where um, two guys like cut their finger, right? And then um, smear it together and become blood brothers, right? Don't worry, that's not what formal membership at Quicksilver requires. We do not require you to cut yourself However, there is something significant about this idea of cutting throughout Scripture as a form of covenant, right? That, that one's called circumcision, okay? And there's also the idea of when you form a covenant, there is, there is a cutting involved. In fact, there's a sacrifice that Abraham did as he was making a covenant or, or signifying a covenant with God. And so the idea of having formality around something significant is important, and the way that we are countercultural at Quicksilver is by making it a membership covenant. And the power of that membership is not to say that you derive some kind of benefit from it, like a Costco membership. You don't get early access to anything. You don't get increased discounts, none of, none of those things. The power of that is the, the sharing of commitment together, is to recognize you're joining a group that has a shared commitment. I was talking to Austin about it a couple of days ago. The power of being a member is realizing other people have made this commitment to. Other people are sacrificing or have made that like cutting commitment to be part of a group, to be part of this group, to be part of this local body. That's the power of it. And that kind of speaks to what I'm going to be talking about today. This is a standalone sermon. And I was um, talking with a therapist recently, and I asked her, what is the biggest problem that she's observed among young people? 
And she hesitated for a second because she was, she was kind of thinking about uh, how, she, how would she identify the, the biggest problem. And she said two words, identity formation. The biggest problem among young people today is they don't have a sense of who they are. And she explained that for a lot of Christians, we automatically have an answer to this, and yet it's not an answer that's, uh, that people appreciate at all. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to take a journey through Exodus, and we're going to look at the story of Moses and the topic of identity. And identity is not a term the Bible uses, and so I'll just kind of introduce it with a term. I got this term from a, from a book called Practicing Your Best Identity, or Finding Your Best Identity by Andrew Bunt, and he calls it a controlling self-understanding. Identity is a controlling self-understanding, and today identity is very controversial because you can have political and ethnic and racial and sexual and gender identity. Those are just some of the big questions we struggle with. And one of, the, one of the problems with the church is that oftentimes we don't give very satisfying answers about those questions because we definitely talk about spiritual identity, but sometimes we can erase all those other identities in light of it. And so we either overemphasize the earthly identities or we overemphasize the spiritual. And there's got to be a way to kind of like bring it together, to kind of integrate them together. And I think the biggest thing is that in broad swaths of our culture today, especially among young people, the act of defining an identity is an individual project. You get to do it on your own. And that is, for what a lot of people think, is a tremendous blessing. And yet throughout most of human history, you never, you never determine your identity on your own. It's always um, defined in the context of a community. Your identity is defined by community. And that's kind of, again, where the church kind of runs into trouble, because what happens when the group that you're a part of, whether it's an ethnic group, whether it's a company, and whether it's a church, decides that you don't fit in, or you determine that you don't fit in, what happens then? And that's where the story of Moses is so important to us. So I'm going to have the text up here, and you can also turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 2. And I'm going to start with chapter 2, verse 9. And we're going, to do, we're going to jump around through Exodus 2 through 4, and then we're going to end up in Hebrews. So we're going to go through two sections of the Bible today. Exodus 2, 9 says this. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Now, we just dove into the action. So let me give you, like, if this were a Star Wars movie, you'd see, like, scrolling big words on the screen. So there's an evil empire. The evil empire is Egypt. The nation of Israel is being oppressed by the, the nation of Egypt. And part of that oppression means every Hebrew, Israelite, newborn boy um, is going to be killed. And then one of the ways they're going to be killed is that those babies are thrown into the Nile. Those baby boys are thrown into the Nile. And so it's kind of setting the context for a promised deliverer against this evil empire of, Israel, of Egypt. Israel's going to have some kind of promised deliverer. And this Hebrew woman has this genius idea. I'm going to throw my kid into the Nile as well but I'm going to put him in like a basket. It's like the baby Yoda basket, like the Grogu thing, right? Um, and so she puts him in this basket, and what happens is Pharaoh's daughter sees her, and that's where it says, take this child away, and he's speaking to the mom. Take this child away um, and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. 
And so you have this very interesting idea because this idea throughout the Bible and Austin preached in the sermon about Jonah is that throughout the Bible, water always means death, right? Water's always death. And so when Pharaoh says, throw him in the water, that's what kills people. And yet Moses is this interesting figure who is thrown into the water, but he's saved by the water, okay? He's drawn out of the water, right? He's saved because of the water. So what is meant for death becomes something that means life because that's what his name means. And always pay attention in the Bible to people's names. It says, because she said, I drew him out of the water. So something that was meant for death means life in the story of Moses. And then you realize this guy, Moses, when he grows up, he does not grow up among his people. So in the very beginning of Moses' life, he does not belong to his own people because he grows up in Pharaoh's household. He grows up under another nation. And so I'm gonna, what I'm going to do throughout the sermon is kind of intersperse a little bit of this with my own story, my own story of ethnic identity. I'm a Bay Area local, and I've spent most of my life here in San Jose. And I'm the son of Chinese immigrants. My mom was from Taiwan, and my, mom, my dad is from Hong Kong. My dad got a job here uh, when I was two. And I didn't grow up in a Christian family. Um, Jesus was a foreign concept to me. And I grew up among a lot of Asian Americans. And my first realization, like so many Asian Americans here, that I was different was um, bringing lunch to school. Now, I think everyone knows the, the, what you bring for lunch kind of has implications, like social implications, right? And I remember the first time I brought fish to school um, and opening it up. Oh, I know. I heard the, yeah, I know. Some people are like, yeah. Um, and the smell was just, it was like a very, very strong smell. And I think among some of my Asian friends, they were like, they were even like, wow. Because, you know, you just shouldn't keep fish in a thermos for a long time. And so the smell was just terrible. And I just remember having this stark sense of like, wow, I am different. I do not fit in. Um, and I don't think I ever brought fish again. And so you have uh, Moses who grows up as royalty in this host nation. And he's a minority but he has majority status. So he lives in the palace and yet looks around and sees the gardeners, the midwives, all the, all the service people looking like him, right? And so this is a very interesting um, predicament that he's in where he must have been incredibly lonely and yet he lives a life of privilege, right? And, and you can probably say for a lot of Asian Americans, especially in the Bay Area, we have a lot of privilege and yet it can be really lonely here um, because we also recognize how different we are from the rest of the country. Now, I'm going to keep reading in Exodus 2, verse 11. <clears throat> One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people. Okay, what does that mean? It means he wasn't with his people because he's in Pharaoh's palace. He grows up among the Egyptians. He went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that. And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? It's kind of foreshadowing there, right? Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. 
At this point, our guess is Moses is about 40 years old. And again, he's been completely insulated um, for most of his life from any kind of Israelite oppression because he grows up in the palace. Now, at, at this one point in his life, he decides that he's going to go out to his people and he sees the injustices that they experience. He sees the oppression. And because that sense of justice is stirred up in him, his instinct is, and for a lot of us, is, inst- is violence, right? He's angry and he becomes violent and he kills the Egyptian, right? That's what happens. The problem is, this is not the way to address injustice. And what he has done is found out by his fellow Hebrews. And that's where he is persecuted, not only by Pharaoh, because Pharaoh finds out as well, but also by his own people. And so there's some irony here that Moses, in his desire to help his own people, is rejected from both of the places that he could conceivably belong to. He's rejected by his first nation, which is the nation of Israel. And he's rejected by his second nation, which is Egypt. And then he flees to Midian. And so um, I think it's worth taking a second to just think about an experience you may have had where you were part of a community, but in the midst of being part of that community, you were either rejected because of something you wanted to do to help, or you just decided to leave. You just decided to leave. Most of my, my, I became a believer through the Chinese church, the Chinese immigrant church. And after I came back to the Chinese church from college, I just had this tremendous arrogance about me because throughout college, I had served with a ministry called Campus Crusade, now known as Crew, and we just did some really exciting things. And going back to the Chinese church felt like backward land, like we were super behind, we were um, not in on all the trends, the music was super slow and not interesting. And so I just thought I'm so much better than this. And so there was this kind of implicit rejection in me of my culture. Because up to that point, what I, the things that I had worshipped in terms of like the tribe of being a Christian, they were all, they're basically around white men. Like Tim Keller was like my go Tim Keller, right? I love that. And, I, and there was a part of me that wasn't, I wouldn't even say it was that secret that wanted to be white. And so there was, this, there was a self-hatred that I experienced that you may have experienced about yourself in the communities that you're in. I don't know if Moses experienced this. I don't know that. Okay, what I do recognize is that in his process of wanting to help Israel, he got ejected. So it didn't matter what he thought. He was no longer part of that community. But all of us have some experience of being displaced or being found outside or of not fitting in with a community that we're supposed to be a part of. And so he, go, he finds himself at a well. Let's just review a little bit when we first started the church we preached through Genesis. We talked about wells. What happens at a well? <clears throat> Anybody? Yes, Shelly. You find your wife. Yes. You find your wife. There's no online dating. There's no bars. But this is a watering hole. Um, and that's what happens. My prayer is Quicksilver would become a well. All right. So um, so what we see happen here. Um, it's, let's look at Exodus 2, 19 through 22. They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. I love it. That's such a weird way to invite him over. Um, and Moses was content to dwell with the man and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. 
Give meaning in marriage. Okay. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, and this is, this is super important to what we're talking about today. He said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. A sojourner in a foreign land. Sojourner means resident foreigner. It means resident alien. Someone who's driven away is a sojourner. It's someone who's nomadic, who resides temporarily in one place. And so um, the first thing you're going to notice as you read this, this name is significant because what does this say about how Moses feels about himself at that point is he does not see himself as belonging and he sees his identity in this place as temporary. And so he, he saves this, um, this woman. And by the way, they recognize him as an Egyptian because he's probably dressed as an, an, as an Egyptian. He draws water for them. He does something heroic. He gets the girl. He gets married and he has a son. But that son, again, is named after being a foreigner. And so like I said, he's an alienated from his first and second nations. He's an alienated from his people. And even though he started a family, he still doesn't feel like he's a part of this people. And so I've been talking about this as an ethnic journey so far, but I want you to imagine again the ways in which you may not fit in to a community. And what I mean particularly is if you've had an experience of being alienated or ashamed within a given community. Some of you may feel that because of your personality, that you're not introverted or as outgoing. Some of you may experience shame because of your um, your spiritual background, because you didn't grow up in church, you're not evangelically house-trained like the rest of us, or you may experience alienation because of your education or your ethnicity or um, something about your um, education. But the, the reality is everyone has some kind of experience that makes them feel like they don't fit in. And so Moses he has a profound understanding of what that means. Probably deeper than any of us can relate to. And so we just need to kind of acknowledge that as we go through this text because Moses is then called through the encounter in the burning bush to speak. And so one of the most obvious ways to be identified as part of an ethnic group or a, a national group is language. So for instance, if you're white and born in the U.S., the bar is pretty low as far as speaking other languages. When we were in Mexico, Judy and I were in Mexico City, and we were at a restaurant, and the waiter, the wait, the waiter came to us and said and asked us, "Do you speak Spanish?" And we both like shook our heads, and there was just this look of disgust on his face, like, "You're not even white." Like, <laughs> um, and so, and then um, the the waiter went to a white woman and just started speaking English. He, he just completely assumed that she didn't know any Spanish, and she spoke back in, like, perfect, well, to me, perfect Spanish. And I just was embarrassed. I'm like, I'm a bad person of color. <clears throat> but so the, the way that you identify ethnic identity is by language. And so Moses has received this calling to speak to Israel. And I just want you to pause for a second. I want you to think about Moses's background because he balks, right? He balks like at least three or four times. Moses does not want to lead the nation of Israel, right? If you're familiar with the story, he does not want to lead the nation of Israel. But I just want you to take a second and think about Moses's background. At what point in his life did he speak Hebrew? Like when he was a baby, that's it. 
That's the only time Moses spoke Hebrew. So his exposure to the language of Hebrew is extremely limited because he only spoke it as a baby. Because most of his time growing up and then going to school was in Egypt in the royal household. So he probably speaks some kind of royal Egyptian. Okay, that's the first 40 years of his life. Only the first maybe five years, right, as he's raised by his mom, does he speak Hebrew. And for a lot of us who are the children of immigrants, you know, especially for me, like, I did grow up going to Chinese school. I hated it. I spoke Chinese up until I was, like, in kindergarten. And then from that point forward, I only spoke English with my parents. And so my Chinese is terrible. So his, his Chinese is probably, like, his Hebrew is probably like my Chinese, but probably even worse, right? Because he doesn't, doesn't have the experience. And then for the last 40 years, he's been in Midian, okay? And what do they speak in Midian? I don't know, probably Midianite or something. Like, I don't know what they speak in Midian, right? But they don't speak Egyptian and they don't speak Hebrew. So for the most, for probably 75 years of his life, he has not spoken Hebrew at all. And he hasn't spoken Egyptian for, I don't know, at least 40 years. And yet God is calling him and saying, hey, you know what? I want you to go back and I want you to speak to Pharaoh in Egyptian. And I want you to lead your people in Hebrew, right? And so you've got to understand, this is why he balks. And so the, the point that I'm going to today is if God were going to raise up a leader, and exodus means journey, if God is going to raise up a leader to lead a group of people in transition, what qualifications would that person have? Well, if you're going to have someone lead someone out of Egypt, they need to be familiar with the palace. They need to have some understanding of what the way palace politics works. And they need to be able to speak a kind of royal Egyptian so that they can negotiate with Pharaoh. Okay. But they're also going to be leading a nation. They're going to be leading the nation of Israel. So they need to have some cultural background. They need to be Hebrew. They need to be an Israelite. And then they're going to be walking and journeying through the wilderness. So they need to have a wilderness experience. And so all the suffering that Moses has gone through has been for this very specific purpose that he is going to equip Moses to become a leader of his people, a transitional leader. Now, how do I know that? Is that, is that possible? How could that possibly be true? Well, um, we can only know that when one of our um, principles of hermeneutics in this church is that we read in light of Christ. We read in light of what the New Testament says about these texts. And so let's go to Hebrews 11. Let's go to Hebrews 11. And I want to read verse 13. And this is the hall of faith. And it describes something about the perspective of these saints. And it will describe Moses' faith as well. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And so what this verse is explaining is that there's an identity to being a Christian that goes beyond any kind of ethnic or any other identities claim. So you can think about belonging to a city. You can think about identities like cities right? You know, you can think about being Chinese, that's one city. Sexual identity, you can call it another city. Political identity is another city. All those different cities are all competing with other cities to lay claim on who we are, to, 
to lay claim on being the controlling self-understanding in our life. And what this passage is saying is that there's actually only one city that makes the biggest difference, and that's a heavenly one, the heavenly city. That identity comes first and foremost. And so when God introduces himself to Moses in the burning bush, he says, I am the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's saying, look, you know what? I belong to your ethnic identity, but I'm calling you to something else. I'm calling you to a new country. And I want you to believe that calling because that is the identity you're going to have. You haven't belonged anywhere else, but you will belong to me and you will lead a a people to a new place. And so what I want to do is I want to share two gifts of, two gifts that you receive when you don't fit in. Okay. I want to, I want to share two gifts that you receive if you don't fit into a group and you find yourself displaced from it, just like Moses. The first gift is this. When you don't fit in, there is a gift of leadership, a gift of leadership, because God does not waste suffering. The cultural alienation that you experience from a group, that prophetic distance is a distance that allows you to rebuke a given culture. And that's what Moses does. He absolutely rebukes Israelite culture, especially when they worship the golden calf. Um, and the gift of it is it allows you to lead a sojourning people. If you've gone to a place other people haven't gone, there's a gift that you can take people there. You can be a bridge, right? So there is absolutely a gift of leadership that Moses experienced because he was a people. He, he, was, a, he was a man caught between three worlds so that he could lead a people caught between two lands. God chose a man searching for his identity to lead a people searching for their own and creating their own. He chose, a man, he chose a man who never belonged to his own people to belong to God. And God chooses your pain of disconnection as a prerequisite to lead a disconnected people so that you and the people you lead would discover intimacy and belonging with God. So any disconnection you feel is a gift of leadership to, to you. There's a second gift that you receive, and that is a gift of dependence, okay? A gift of dependence that you receive. See, any aspect that you have in common with other people, it's great. You get to experience belonging and even self-sufficiency. But any aspect where you don't fit in is a gift of dependence, okay? So what does God do after Moses makes all these excuses about not being able to speak and really clearly speak Hebrew? God gives him a native Hebrew speaker in the form of his brother, right? God gives him someone who can talk well, talk good, okay? God gives him Aaron, right? And God gives him that as a gift of dependence because when you don't fit in, you need someone who can help you lead, who can help, who can help depend on you. And it doesn't just end there because there's this really strange scene in chapter four where after God speaks to Moses in the burning bush, there's this really strange thing where it says God wanted to kill Moses. Have you guys read this section? Like it says God wanted to kill Moses. And you're, you're like, I don't even understand why. And then Zipporah does this weird thing where she circumcises, cuts off the, the, the foreskin of the penis of um, their son, Zipporah. Yeah, that's what happens, right? And then lays it at his feet and touches his feet with it. Super, super weird. Here's how, here's how I make sense of it. Because Moses did not see himself as a Hebrew, he saw himself as a sojourner, he did not want to circumcise his son the way you're supposed to if you're Hebrew, because he didn't see himself as that. And I think God was angry. He's like, you know what? Don't you realize who you are? Don't you realize you belong to the people of God? And so what 
uh, Moses does, or what really what Zipporah does, is she recognizes, look, God has spoken to you. You are a Hebrew, and I'm going to carry out this act of circumcision that you couldn't do so that you would realize that you actually do belong to God. And that's what saves him. So God provides Zipporah and Aaron as someone, as people that Moses depends on. And that's actually the story of Moses in the desert. And the story of Israel in the desert is God provides people that he can depend on. Now, is this a, is this a valid way to read this? Let's, also, let's go back again to Hebrews 11, verse 24. It says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing, rather, to, mis- to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. And so what we see, we see some of Pharaoh's, I'm sorry, Moses' internal motivations, right? That his desire to be with his people was not an accident, That is something he was desiring to do because he identified with the people of God and he was willing to take on shame and alienation to to look for his reward in leaving Egypt. And so, like I said, you can think of every identity as a type of city, okay? But the only way you receive the gift of leadership and the gift of dependence is if you forsake all other identities and take on the one God has given you, okay? You take on the one as God has given you. That once you take on the identity of what it means to seek the heavenly city, it orders every other identity. But it does mean having to lose and surrender the ways that you belong in all those other ways, in, in the other ways. So let me give an example. I'm going to spoil a movie. I think any movie 15 years or older, um, there's like a statute of limitations, right? So, um, so I think it's okay for me to spoil it. 2008 movie, Uh, The Dark Knight, features a public figure, not Batman, who is widely admired because of his stance against crime. But in a bizarre set of events, this public figure becomes the bad guy. And so Batman has to step in and save the city of Gotham. Um, And he has to save it from this this good guy who turned into a bad guy who is on a vendetta. And so at the end, when the bad guy dies, but not by Batman, the Dark Knight must be the scapegoat for the death of this public figure. And he must bear the reproach of the city of Gotham so that it would be saved. And I'm just going to deliberately misquote it here. Batman is not the hero the city wants, but the hero it needs. And so let me read from Hebrews 13, verse 12 and 14, verse 12 through 14. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. You have the privilege of being like Batman. And your commitment isn't to save a city. Your commitment is to seek one. 
Now, at the beginning of today's service, Austin read from Revelation 21. And in Revelation 22, it talks about the city where, our na- or where Jesus' name is written on our foreheads. We seek a heavenly city. And because, that's, because we identify with that city, it orders every other identity. But in doing so, it means we forsake all other identities. It means we bear the reproach and the shame of that city. But it makes sense of every other identity. So in order today, if you are not fitting in, if you experience alienation and shame because you are different, because you don't meet the norms of a community, would you recognize because you seek a heavenly city and you belong to that city, that the things in which you don't fit in are a gift of leadership to you, are a gift of dependence? Would you see that today? Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you that you have called us by name for your name, for your character and works and reputation. And thank you for the example of Moses who was saved out of the water so that he could save those through the water by the parting of the Red Sea. And thank you that in his example, he forsook all earthly identities and all earthly cities so that he could seek the heavenly one. And he is a type of you, Jesus, who forsake, who forsook everything so that we could have life with you. And so Lord, in our search to have an identity, would we recognize that any way in which we belong or sim- are similar to others is, is great and is a, it may not be a suffering, but any ways in which we do not fit in because we identify with the heavenly city It is a gift to us in leadership. It is a gift to us in dependence. Lord, would you help us to see the gift of not fitting in today? We pray this in your name. Amen.